0: Okay, so can you guys tell me what you remember about leukemia? Leukemia? What are they? Anemia.
1: Oh my god. I just
0: remember. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about anemia. Why do you have? Anemia. Oh, yay! Okay, great. <laughs> but why, with leukemia, would you have symptoms of, of anemia? Oh, because the white blood cells are
1: crowding
0: out the red. Right, that's exactly why. The white blood cells don't die when they're supposed to, so there's way too many of them, so they crowd out the red blood cells, so they can't essentially carry those four oxygen, like the hemoglobin doesn't get full to carry the the oxygen so what kind of symptoms would you have with someone that has anemia like what what would you expect to see or for them to experience fatigue, fatigue. fatigue for sure anything else power. and definitely pallor okay so hundred percent those are, are big ones anything else we remember about leukemia so cancer of hematopoietic cells, hematopoietic cells. Is there form type? There are, okay. Do we remember what the types are? There acute and
1: chronic.
0: Yep, there was definitely acute, and then another acute, and, and then a chronic, and then another chronic. And
1: there's
0: ones that are mature cells and ones that are immature cells? Right. So, when we use the term acute, what does that mean about the disease? It's severe. Severe and quickly progressive, right? So it's typically, if it's not caught early, you could be dead in a couple of months, right? Whereas if it's chronic, we're talking about, slow progressive, right? You can live with chronic leukemia for many, many, many years, even without treatment. But of course you can live significantly a long time with treatment. Okay, so when we talk about these mature cells that are affected, what is the word we what is the end of the word we use when it's a mature cell? A site. And what is the word we use when it's an immature or baby cell? Blast. A blast. Okay. So now that we know that, what are your agranulocytes?
1: A granulocytes. Oh, a granulocytes. Uh,
0: B, B and T cells. Okay, so your B and T cells, they circulate in what system?
2: Lymphatic,
0: Lymphatic system. Okay, so you can have acute. Lymphoblastic leukemia. Oh, right. You can have chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So, right off the bat, you know that when you use the word lymphoblastic, it's an immature, either a B or a T cell. It is most commonly a B cell, but all we need to remember right now is these agranulocytes that are affected with that. So same thing when we talk about chronic lymphocytes. The site tells you they're mature cells and it's the BRT cells that are affected. Okay, so what is the other type of cell? What are the granulocytes called as a group? The oh, granulocytes. The granulocytes. So yeah, your eosinophils, your basophils. As a group, they're called myeloid cells. So, you would have acute. Myelode- if you said that, you would not be wrong. They do say myelogenous uh, leukemia. Now, but the fact that you know this word is a granulocyte, you know that it has to do with not your B and not your T cells. So, your macrophages, for example, your eosinophils, your basophils, right? And then you'd have your chronic myelocytic leukemia okay anything else we know about leukemia that we remember who gets it so especially acute lymphoblastic leukemia any of the acute ones are more common in kids Um, but who generally would get any of these? What is the bigger population? Older individuals. So usually with leukemia, oftentimes, with any cancer, the older you are, the more chances you have of developing cancer. So any of these can be found more so in, indivi- in older individuals, but of course your chronic ones, more commonly around the 60s or 70s. Your acute ones, Tend to be the ones that you see in children. If you're going to see any leukemias in children, these are the ones you're going to typically see. Okay, anything else we know about our leukemias? <clears throat> anything else? What do you want us to <laughs> What's that? What do you want us to
1: do? Oh, I was just
0: about to do that. So, other signs and symptoms. What other cells? So, we talked about our, our lymphocytes that are affected, which we know are B cells and T cells. We talked about our myeloid cells, which are like basophils and eosinophils, um which we know are affected. Is there anything else that's created from the bone marrow? Okay, red blood cells, which we know are going to create anemia. What other cells are created by bone marrow, platelets, Platelets. or thrombocytes? What is the function of platelets or thrombocytes? So what do you think might be another manifestation? So easily um, bleeding, easily bruised. Anything else you would expect someone to have that might have leukemia? What other signs and symptoms would you maybe have? It's a cancer, so what other signs and symptoms might they have? Weight loss. Weight lo- unexplained weight loss, for sure. Anything else? <laughs> unexplained night sweats, for sure. Anything else? Do you think they might have flu like symptoms? Malaise maybe some fever, low-grade fever, it's not usually going to be high-grade. Anything else you can think of? Might they feel something? No, they won't feel anything? They're gonna feel something, they're gonna feel something. Lymph nodes, what about the lymph nodes? They'll be enlarged, right? Anything else we need to know about lymph nodes? They'll be enlarged. So we can use the word swollen, but swelling usually entails inflammation where it truly isn't. Enlarged lymph nodes, anything else? I just want to interrupt you for two seconds and ask if you're recording. Yes. Okay, what else? So swollen, enlarged lymph nodes, anything else we need to know about lymph nodes? Um, they're usually not painful or non tender. That's really important. When you have a cold, oftentimes you're a little sore around the lymph nodes. That's a good sign. If they're enlarged, you can feel them, they're pee like, and they're not tender. I'm not saying you have cancer. But that's one of the things that you look for, for an ominous sign. There's one more sign when we're talking about lymph nodes. When you feel a lymph node, it should be movable. So this is non-movable. Or it's adhered to the underlying structure. These are all very bad signs. Now, so this is the thing. These, I'm going to tell you right now, are the primary... are the primary symptoms for lymphoma. Lymphoma, we talked about just quickly, was cancer of the lymphatic system. So, spleen, the lymph vessels, your lymph nodes, your thymus, anything in that system, if you have cancer of that, that would be your lymphoma. Classic, classic symptoms for lymphoma are exactly these three things. That's usually how it gets diagnosed. People say, you know what? My lymph nodes have been really swollen for, for a long time. I should go get it looked at. And they go get some blood work and their white blood cells are just in the tubes, which then starts off a whole bunch of testing. So if you have lymph nodes, if you're palpating lymph nodes on your patients and they haven't been ill, okay, they don't have a cold, they don't have a runny nose, they don't have hay fever or any other allergies, And these lymph nodes have been palpable for quite some time. We're talking about more than a few weeks, right? Because if you have the cold or flu, you should be over it in a couple of weeks. So we're talking about longer than that. And they're non-movable and it doesn't bother them. They're not tender at all. Those are bad signs. They should really get sent back to a GP and get that looked at, okay? Because those are the classic symptoms for lymphoma, which are also symptoms for leukemia. Okay, but those are the big classic ones for lymphoma. Okay, so now that we've talked a little bit about leukemia, we'll watch what we didn't watch last week.
1: He's a sweetheart, a good kid. No, I
3: am not
4: a
2: sweetheart.
1: You're not? Are you a crazy pants though? Yes, I am a
2: crazy pants. There
5: you go. We noticed that his arms were kind of sore when we would play with him. We asked him if he was hungry, he said no. We brought him into our family physician and he thought he had the mumps, he had a fever.
0: So they did blood work. Just as we were going to bed that night, a pediatrician called and said, you have to take Sully to children's, so I expecting him. Um, the pathologist has confirmed he
1: has leukemia. Sully has pre-B cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's the most common type of leukemia in children. We treat acute lymphoblastic leukemia with chemotherapy yeah. For boys, it's about three and a half years. With the first six to nine months being very intense, and the last two and a half years with to something called maintenance chemotherapy. We just started maintenance today, which we've been doing frontline treatment for nine months. We've been inpatient for probably close to or plus days. Some of these things that are high risk because of so CNS, which is disease day. in the spinal cord, exactly. at time of diagnosis. Thanks to great research and clinical trials, we've come so far in the treatment of pediatric cancers, especially leukemia. 40 or 50 years ago, this would have essentially been fatal. We rely on funding to move this research forward and be able to bring it to our patients. The National Cancer Institute only um, budgets about 4% for pediatric cancer and 14,000 children are diagnosed with cancer in the United States each year.
3: My boy got no choice. He just got sick, and there was nothing anybody could do about it.
5: When I had him, I wanted to protect him, and I feel like I let him down because but when you're standing over the edge looking at something that could take away your son, it's pretty scary.
1: But,
0: you know, he's doing great, and day after day, we just have to remind ourselves to base it on how he's feeling. And as you could tell today, He's doing amazing. So I I won't get you to watch it all, but um, his symptoms were, he was sore. Those were his symptoms. That's it. So it's not, like these cancers, lymphoma too, they're not slapping you in the face with symptoms. So we'll watch this one because this gives you a little bit of an idea of what the treatment's like. In
1: the life of a 10-year-old, Hi everybody, my name is Lauren Cunningham, and I'm going to show you what it's like to be in the life of a 10-year-old with cancer.
4: We are at Nationwide now. Hi, we're up on the 11th floor now, and I'm going to get access soon,
1: and I'm going to get my room. She woke up before I was going to work and came out and said, look at my eyes, and her left eye was turned in, um, and I thought she was doing it to be funny, and I said, you need to stop that. She said, no, my eye's doing that on its own. So we took her to the emergency room here in town, took her down to do an MRI.
4: And a nurse comes out, puts her hand on my back, and you just know something's not right, you know? And he said, well, your daughter's got leukemia. She needs to get to Nationwide
1: Children's Hospital now. So we went then to Nationwide by ambulance and everything went into place there. Lauren was really, really sick when she came in and um, she had so many leukemia cells that they were clogging up her blood vessels and causing some side effects. So when I first met met Lauren, she was actually um, sedated and intubated and on a ventilator breathing machine um, because we were trying to protect her lungs and protect her brain from the leukemia cells. A big thing for us you said they told us to do was to be honest with the child. We tell Lauren what's happening from the beginning, once she woke up of, uh, here's, you're at Nationwide Children's Hospital, this is why you're here, you're going to lose your hair, just whatever steps are coming, we try to get them to her first and answer any questions she has. I think that's very important for the kids. Yeah. Have that honesty and openness, and Lauren can tell you a lot that's going on with her treatment. I think that's good.
4: I'm going to take my medicine. This one is Keppra,
0: it's for seizures.
1: Okay, how many times a day do you take it?
0: Twice. It's takes that?
1: It's back Germans for, and an antibiotic. And how often do you take that? Every weekend. Lauren's treatment plan is very similar to all children with who have any type of ALL, not just the T-cell ALL. So that means they get six to nine months of intensive chemotherapy. Lauren is currently finishing interim maintenance too, and that is one of the intensive phases of chemotherapy. Starting in April, your hair will
4: start growing back.
1: Okay, can we skip to April now? I really want your leukemia to never come back, so I'm to keep giving you all this stuff. I don't like the space to fly. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. They
4: give me my treatment. They give me my shots. They don't want to do it, but they do it so I can get better. My feeling is that Nationwide Children's Hospital does uh, affect more than just kids in Columbus, Ohio. I mean. We drive an hour and 40 minutes to get the treatment, and and I'm more than happy to drive that hour and 40 minutes, knowing that we're going to a place that can provide this for Lauren. She started getting sick on the way. This is this don't happen that often, but I think Ryan's had it happen once or twice. It
1: was once, and it was in the parking lot for vacation. Yeah. Now, can I have something my face
4: please? All right, we'll take it again in a little bit. This is kind of how Lauren's been all day today. She's not feeling real well. The uh, methotrexate and vincristine and Erwinia in one day must be sitting in on her stomach a little bit.
1: We were told she may not make this, and I think without that research and knowing what steps to take, she wouldn't be with us. And I think Nationwide saved her life, and I think it was through that research. In terms of what is allocated to us, it's only 4% of the National Cancer Institute's research budget. And so almost all of our research...
0: The rest of it's all information about money. Um, So if you look at both kids' symptoms, I mean, her symptoms, the eye went the wrong way, which gives you an indication of something neurological. That's the first thing I would have thought of. You probably would have referred out anyways. But the symptoms are not easy to diagnose. So, I just wanted to make sure everybody had a good understanding of that. Okay, so lymphoma. So, when we talk about cancer, remind me what stage one always means. Nope. Oh, Sh-
2: stage
0: zero. Yeah, so, that, and that would be precancerous, for example. But what about stage one? What does that mean? So, it's just localized, it's not super destructive to the tissue it's in, but it is starting to become aggressive. Stage two is now, it's now starting to become aggressive in the tissue it's in, but it's still staying local. Stage three, yes, yeah, surrounding tissue. So a surrounding organ or surrounding lymph node, which that's usually the beginning of major metastasis, right? And then stage four, it's usually in multiple organs, yeah. So when we talk about lymphoma specifically, um, the stages are a little bit different. The stages are basically on whether or not it crosses the diaphragm. So if it's on one side of the diaphragm, let's say for example you have supraclavicular lymph nodes that are inflamed, swollen. Or you have axillary lymph nodes that are swollen. If it's just on one side of the diaphragm, it's considered stage one or two. It's not until it moves across the diaphragm what it would affect, let's say the cervical or mandibular or axillary, as well as the inguinal. Okay, that would be stage three, which is usually a bad sign, because at that point you know that there's also probably the spleen that's been involved. So there's an organ that's been involved. So if you can catch this, so if you do think that there is any kind of possible leukemia or lymphoma, I would strongly suggest that you do palpate the lymph nodes. And the primary ones that we look at are always submandibular, cervical, axillary. Um, You can do sternal, they're not quite as prominent. And then groin, inguinal are the big ones, right? So you wanna make sure if you're palpating, non-tender, swollen or large lymph nodes that are not moving very well, they feel adhesed, you wanna start making sure that you palpate above and below the diaphragm, okay? Because then you'll have an idea, is this a stage one, two, or is this a stage three? Either way, you're referring out, but it would be a good idea to have an idea of how severe this is for the patient. Okay, so the thing about lymphoma is it goes in an orderly fashion. Meaning, let's say if it started with the axillary lymph nodes, it would then move to the cervical. Then it would move to mandibular. It goes from one to the other to the other. It wouldn't typically go from cervical to inguinal to submandibular to popliteal okay doesn't jump it usually goes from one to the other to the other to the other so if you're palpating something in the cervical spine make sure you palpate everything within that area right to get an idea of what's going on who do you think most commonly gets lymphoma who gets cancer more likely the older we are the more likely it is so when we talk about lymphoma We have two different kinds, we had Hodgkin's disease and we have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, Hodgkin's disease is also known as Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, They are interchangeable, okay? So when we talk about Hodgkin's disease, if there is an individual that has lymphoma that is diagnosed when they're anywhere between the age of 15 to 35, it is almost always gonna be Hodgkin's disease. Okay, that's really important. And then we'll talk about really the differentiation. The only way you'll know the difference if it's Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's is gonna be through testing. But Hodgkin's is the only one that really affects younger individuals, 15 to 35. And then if you don't have it at 15 to 35, the next time you might see it is usually in your 50s, 60s, or 70s. Okay, so it will affect older individuals. Whereas non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is usually between the age of 60, 70, if not older.
1: Yeah? For cats,
0: Okay, so it could be pre-Hodgkin's. That usually is in the esophagus. So it could be from esophageal, or it could be from Burkitt's lymphoma. So you can get Burkitt's esophageal cancer, carcinoma, or you can get Burkitt's lymphoma. So again, you, the only way you would know that is by um, biopsy and then tests. Lymphoma can be anywhere, especially again if it started to metastasize. So let's just say it started in the inguinal region and then it went to the popliteal. If it did cross the um, diaphragm, it would have gone up. 100% it's going to hit the spleen because the lymphatic system, I mean, that's one of the major places it goes, right? Is the lymph nodes, the spleen, and the thymus. So almost always, once you've hit stage three, the spleen's always affected. <laughs> once the spleen's affected, it's right in the GI area, so it's not uncommon. Unfortunately, once you get to stage three or three or three or four that the GI be affected. At that point, it might be palliative depending on how their status is, right? Their age and whether or not they can deal with the chemo or the radiation. Okay, so we definitely need to know both staging 100%. You need to know that lymphoma is Linear, meaning it doesn't jump lymph nodes, okay? It goes from one to the next one right beside it, to the next one right beside it. It's really important that you know if it crosses the diaphragm, that's a bad sign. It now means it's metastasized. So you're talking about stage three or four. And then also the spleen is oftentimes affected. What's the problem with the spleen being affected? It
2: affects your circulation.
0: The spleen has huge amounts of blood supply. That is true. What is the function of the spleen? It stores a lot of blood. What else does it store? Mature B cells, primarily. And is there anything else it does, the spleen? Does it break down red blood cells? The old, worn out red blood cells, it'll break them down, put them down into usable parts so that we can recycle them. So that's another really important part of the spleen. So if the spleen now becomes affected, you now have less B cells, right, because that's a storage for them. It's also a place where they could possibly mature a little bit. Not the primary place, because that's the lymph nodes. Storage for blood, another big one, just like liver, and then recycling of red blood cells. So these, these individuals may end up with fatigue, malaise, anemia type of symptoms, again, because those red blood cells may not be getting recycled properly. Okay, what, tell me all the parts of the lymphatic system. Okay, lymph nodes. Tell me something about lymph nodes. Why are lymph nodes for us so important? What is their function? What do they do? They will, yeah, they'll hang out there until they're needed. There's something else even more important than that that they do. So we have B cells that leave the bone marrow, right? Our white blood cells leave the bone marrow and they're kind of like Adolescents. They can't really work. They kind of work, but not really. So how do they become mature? How do they start to actually be like the army you need them to be?
5: Maturing
0: the nodes. By hanging out in the lymph nodes and maturing. So lymph nodes are really, really, really important because they mature B cells. So you take away your lymph nodes. You're now not able to make these mature or hard-working immune system. That's a big deal. Okay, what else do we have for lymphatic system? Okay, lymph vessels, for sure. And really, their big importance is really just that they're circulating the immune system, right? They're gonna go where they need to be. Anything else that we have? Okay, the fluid, yeah, okay, we could add that. What organs are really important for the lymphatic system? The thymus. Why is the thymus so important? The thymus that starts with a T, because t- t- it matures T cells. Again, without your thymus, how do you get part of your T killer cells, your T4 cells, your T8 cells? And then, of course, we have the spleen, which we've already talked about. Okay. So out of all of those things anywhere in here is where you could have lymphoma, but why is it that you would have swollen, we'll just use that word, but really we should use the word enlarged, enlarged lymph nodes, why would that happen? why is it that you don't feel the vessels enlarged or the spleen enlarged or the thymus enlarged why is it that you feel the lymph nodes being enlarged so the spleen how hard is it to palpate your spleen it's like uh, way in there right so if you had splenomegaly Typically, you'll be sore here before you'll be able to actually feel it. So, that's part of the reason why you're not going to feel the spleen being enlarged. But it will be enlarged, right? Because you have these cancer cells now that are supposed to die, let's say, in 120 days. And are they dying in 120 days? Is there apoptosis occurring? They're cancer cells, they live on. So now you've got all of these extra tissues with all of these extra cells that are large. They're multinucleated cells, they're much larger, they're not working properly, and there's so many more of them. So, where are they hanging out? In the spleen, in the lymph node. They don't really hang out so much in the thymus, and usually by the time our age is, it's starting to whittle away, anyways. Can't your spleen get enlarged with a lot of other issues too? Tons lymph uh, li- the liver issues is one of the big ones yeah 100 percent but again unless people are actually aware that there's tenderness here that's usually not going to be the first symptom it really is a lymph because they're way easier to palpate than a spleen would be okay so we need to know about the two different kinds hodgkins and non-hodgkins okay there's Most of them are non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think 80 to 90% of lymphomas are non-Hodgkin's. And we need to know that non-Hodgkin's typically affects the older individuals. So I think the average age is like 66, but it's usually around the age of like 60, 70. That's usually when you get diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Hodgkin's lymphoma is usually only about 10 to 20% of all lymphomas. Okay, so it's a lesser percentage, but that's the one that'll affect the younger individuals. So 15 to 35, if there's an individual in their adolescent years that gets lymphoma, they're getting Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, okay, we talked about these white blood cells are now not normal, they're cancer cells, right? They're replicating too fast, and they're replicating a little bit larger than they're supposed to be, and they're supposed to have one nucleus. Each cell has one nucleus. These ones are gonna be binucleated or multinucleated, which means instead of being this big, they'll be this big, right? So they're taking up way more room. And they're also not working properly. When you, I'm gonna step back. Reminds me, when we have um, plasma cells, So we have B cells that are being produced by the bone marrow, right? B cells produced by the bone marrow. They're going to differentiate as they're circulating through the lymphatic system into plasma cells. Plasma cells are going to secrete what? These are your adult or mature or ready to fight lymph nodes. What do we have, plasma cells will secrete what? you guys remember
1: what do plasma cells secrete
0: those are the bad guys antigens are the bad guys so antibodies so another name antibody is also known as immunoglobulin does that sound familiar okay so plasma cells are going to secrete five different types of immunoglobulin Okay? IgG, IgM, IgE, IgA, IgD each one of these has a specific um, jaw so for example IgM will be if there's a big infection it'll be your big massive first time to the line so it's like your firefighters getting there might not be the right person to get there but they're the first ones there and they're ready to fight okay whereas for example IgA are usually found in GI parasitic infections. So each of these will have a different function. Now, what happens if you only take blood and you only ever find IgE, for example? There's no other immunoglobulin in the body. Is that a problem? That's a huge problem. That's one of the signs of Hodgkin's lymphoma. When you only have one immunoglobulin being produced by plasma cells, that's called Reed Sternberg cells. Okay, it's, in the, it's in the slides. But you need to know that. Because when you take blood and they look at it underneath the microscope and they see that those cells are multinucleated or binucleated, they're enlarged, and they now see these Reed Sternberg cells, which means there's only one immunoglobulin being produced. That's ding, 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 ding for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay, so that's really important. Okay. So, these are all the places that can get affected. So, please remember those immunoglobulins that are being produced because that's a really important thing that we need to know. We've already talked about the most common manifestations non tender, swollen, or enlarged lymph nodes that are adhesed. I didn't put that on here. But typically, lymph nodes should be movable. You should be able to move them. These ones are going to feel adhesed. So, that's also another bad sign. Drenching night sweats red flag, right? Fatigue, usually because of the anemia. Intermittent fever. Okay, so if someone told you they have lymph nodes, they tend to get hot and cold, they're having night sweats, and they're feeling tired, what do you think? That totally sounds like the flu. Has anybody had these symptoms? Totally. So if this goes on for a week, are you thinking it's lymphoma? No, it's not the first thing in my mind. But now if someone tells me this has been going on for three, four, five, six, seven weeks, and I'm looking at their age, hmm, I might want to send them back to the GP to just get some blood work. Okay? So I'm not concerned if it's a couple of weeks. But if it's more than a month, this is something I might want to have, get looked into. Okay. Epstein-Barr virus. So mononucleosis, that's the kissing disease if anybody's had it. Um, basically, you just feel exhausted, okay? The Epstein-Barr virus is the, is the causative agent for mononucleosis. For some reason, and we don't know why, we think it's the immune system that changes once you're affected by that virus, um, but there's a large percentage of individuals with Hodgkin's lymphoma that actually end up, that have had, sorry, mono at some point in their life. So you could have mono when you're, in your tweens or in your teens, and then 10 years later, five years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, developing lymphoma. So it's something that would be great to know if you are especially thinking that someone might have lymphoma, but it doesn't necessarily mean just because they've had mono they're gonna have lymphoma, but it definitely really increases the risk for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay, so that is something that we've definitely noticed a lot about. I'm not going to, there's like 30 different types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I don't care if you remember them or not. It really doesn't matter to me. The symptoms are going to be the exact same. So are you going to have enlarged lymph nodes? 100%. Are they going to be adhesed? 100%. Is it going to be non-tender or not painful? 100%. Are you going to have fatigue? Probably. Right? Are you going to have nice sweats? Is there going to be weight loss? All of those symptoms. So are you going to know if it's Hodgkin's lymphoma or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Do you care? (laughs) Refer out, right? I don't care if it's Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's. Makes no difference to me. I need to know that there's an early detection and it's caught and it gets treated because I can't do that. So if you're suspecting any of those manifestations, please get them looked at. Ah, that's just a lymph node, we don't really care about that. Okay, so regardless of the type of lymphoma, your lymph nodes are going to be usually your first sign. And who better to feel these than all of us? I will tell you, most physios don't spend a whole lot of time doing soft tissue work. Most chiros don't spend a whole lot of time doing soft tissue work. Guess who spends a whole lot of time working on people's skin? palpating these things. and massage therapists are probably the ones that spend the most amount of time. So you guys are really gonna be the first line of defense for your patients when it comes to this. And if they haven't noticed that they're enlarged, make them aware, have them palpate it, and then tell them if this is still going on in the next three or four weeks, I really recommend that you go back to your GP. Ask for blood work and get an ultrasound, okay? Now, is it possible it's not cancer? Yes, you can have calcified lymph nodes. You can have lymph nodes that become very, very hard that basically just calcium gets deposited in them. We don't know why it happens. An easy ultrasound will be able to rule that out. Blood work will be totally normal. But it would be much better to refer them out to know that it's just a calcified lymph node than to say, hmm, we'll just chalk it up to calcified lymph node and then all of a sudden when they get diagnosed, this is stage three or four, right? So just get them tested. Because again, these symptoms, weight loss, fatigue, night sweats, intermittent fever, lymph nodes swollen, screaming out cancer? Maybe now, but before? No, right? Okay, all right. Um, so is there anything else that you think might be um, more of a late stage? So here we have our lymphatic system being affected. So we have our lymph nodes that are being affected that are supposed to mature our B cells and they're kind of not working well. And then we have the thymus that's supposed to be maturing T cells and it's not working well. And then you've got these B cells and T cells that are created that aren't even working properly because they're all screwed up. Their DNA is all messed up. So what kinds of things do you think if it doesn't get caught will eventually maybe get it diagnosed. Your immune system's not working well, so what's gonna happen? Recurrent infections. So typically, if the lymph nodes don't trigger anybody, usually there's going to be recurrent infections. These people are gonna keep saying, oh my God, I keep getting sick. Or they'll have pneumonia. which is an opportunistic infection. So when your immune system's a little low, hey, let's just kick you while you're down, right? So oftentimes, that will be the clincher. People will go finally go see their doctor because they've been sick for like six months, eight months, and nothing's going away, and it just keeps getting worse, and all of a sudden, they'll get blood work, and they say, oh, opportunistic infection. Stage two, three, four lymphoma, right? So. Let's not let it get to that point. Okay, so we've already talked about all of those. That's wonderful. The stages, we need to know about these stages. Hint, hint. In an orderly fashion, if it crosses the diaphragm, if it goes to organs, okay. So, what do you think's the mainstay of treatment? Chemo radiation. So chemo and radiation are carcinogenic. So when you go back into the causes, so if when you go back into the causes, one of the causes is chemo and radiation. Um, when we talked about immunosuppressants or DMARDS, remember we talked about the drug modifying anti-rheumatic drugs? We talked about those with ankylosing spondylitis. We talked about those with rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. They would all use those medications. Basically, DMARDs are low-dose cancer treatments. That's basically what it is. It's low-dose chemotherapy. So an individual that's had rheumatoid arthritis or SLE or ankylosing spondylitis, and they're on methotrexate for 20, 30, 40 years, increases the risk of... Lymphoma. So if you know that, with your individuals that are taking these meds, anybody who's basically got a spondyloarthropathy or a chronic progressive arthritide, make sure you're palpating these lymph nodes. Because again, their risk factor is through the roof compared to anybody else's. And you could be the first one to diagnose it and diagnose it early. All right. So let's, let's watch a little video about our lymphoma.
3: Lymphomas are cancers of the lymphatic system. Cancers occur when a cell or group of cells go out of control and keep dividing to make more and more similar cells. These are not helpful to the body. The aim of treatments for cancer is to kill the out of control cells. But most treatments that kill cancer cells will also kill or damage normal cells. So there is always a balance between killing cancer cells and making sure that normal cells can recover well afterwards. The lymphatics are a system of fine tubes that drain a fluid called lymph. This bathes all the cells in the organs and tissues of the body and returns waste products to the blood circulation lymph vessels are interrupted by lymph nodes or glands, which are small bean-shaped structures that are part of the immune system, the body's defense against infection. Cells called lymphocytes are found in the lymph nodes. There are many kinds of lymphocytes. Some can make antibodies to fight infections, and others kill invading organisms such as bacteria and viruses, or kill infected cells. Lymphocytes travel around the body in the lymph and blood. In healthy adults, lymph nodes can't be seen or felt. But when you have an infection, the lymph nodes draining the infected area can become enlarged. This is because the lymphocytes multiply to overcome the infection. When you have, for instance, a sore throat, it's quite common to feel enlarged nodes or swollen glands under the jaw. Lymph nodes are complicated structures, and there are many different types of lymphocytes within one lymph node. Any of these can go wrong and give rise to a lymphoma. Consequently, there are many different types of lymphoma. Also, lymphomas can arise in lymph nodes or in some other tissues and organs, so there are many possible locations for lymphoma. About a quarter of all lymphomas are referred to as Hodgkin lymphoma, which is named after Dr. Thomas Hodgkin from Guy's Hospital in London, who first described the disease in 1832. All other lymphomas are called non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Hodgkin lymphoma can occur at any age, but is most common in young people in their 20s. Apart from this peak in occurrence in young adults, The incidence of Hodgkin lymphoma generally increases with age, so it is also more common in people over 50. Although Hodgkin lymphoma is a rare tumor overall, it is one of the most common forms of cancer in people under 30. All other lymphomas are called non-Hodgkin lymphoma. There are a lot of different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma can occur at any age, but the incidence increases with age, so most patients with NHL are over 50.
0: Do you guys remember covering multiple myeloma? Tell me about it. Oh, salt and pepper skull? Yes. Why is there salt and pepper skull? So decalcified, there's holes, okay. So you have bone lesions. Where are the really common places for the bone lesions to be? Skull, spine, ribs, yep, clavicle, okay. Anything else we know about it? So there's bone lesions. There is anemia. It is malignant. It has a, yeah, well, fair to poor. I mean, sometimes it's just a watch and see approach depending on the individual, but mostly poor. isn't
1: the one where you said it's like more, men, but then you had the one. Yeah, okay, it is that one. Yeah, So, so this is more men. So, are
0: more men, more common African descent.
1: And older.
0: And yes, it's usually more common in older adults, it's like 60s, 70s. Anything else we know about it? What was, our, what was our word that we needed to know? Crab. crab. What is CRAB? What does a C stand for? Calcium. calcium. Why is there hypercalcemia in the blood? Because the osteocytes are eating away at bone, which are releasing calcium, and where's the calcium going? In the blood. So you have hypercalcemia. So the C part is high calcium in the blood. What's the R? Why Why renal injury? Because you don't have because of the imbalance of calcium making them not work If you have too much calcium, is that good in the blood? Do you want that? How do you get rid of it? Pee it out. Okay, so eventually that'll eventually renal failure. And the A, we talked about anemia because the bone marrow does start to get affected and the bone marrow makes your red blood cells. And then the B is for bone lesions and or bone pain. Oops. Okay, wonderful. What else do we know about multiple myeloma? So, let's talk about the prognosis. So the prognosis is fair to poor. Why would it be poor? This is a malignant cancer. Is this going to go away? No. Okay. So, it's going to kill you if something else doesn't kill you first. So it's malignant. It's going to be progressive. It's going to deteriorate the bone. You're probably going to end up with pathological fractures. Does everybody agree with that? Okay. Why would you have a fair prognosis? Could this be diagnosed as someone that's 50 years old, super healthy? With no comorbidities, no other issues, no other health issues? It can be. And in that case, if it's not too aggressive, it's in a relatively younger individual because this really likes kind of your 60s, 70s, 80s. So if it starts to hit someone in their 40s or 50s and they're super healthy, they can usually live with this for quite some time without any treatment and have a good life with it. But commonly, the older you are, the more aggressive it is. And what is your health state the older you are typically? Quite declining right so it is commonly poor prognosis but it can be fair which is when we would say watch for waiting right if they're young and healthy and they haven't had any pathological fractures we're just gonna monitor them let's maintain the kidneys let's make sure the kidneys are doing okay we'll do some kidney function tests every you know three to six months we'll do some x-rays every three to six months and basically watch because why radiate and do chemotherapy when that could take away their ability to be able to continue to live at that point when they're in their 50s, right? Okay, anything else we know about multiple myeloma? Anything else we need to know? So we said it's malignant. We said who the epidemiology is. We talked about the bones. Oh yeah, what is the M protein? one immunoglobulin primarily formed. So when you can pee it out, do you guys remember what it's called when you pee out your M protein? The large proteins that you can pee out? Benz Jones protein. So on a urinalysis, if they looked at it, they basically would take your pee, look at it underneath the microscope. If they had a large chain molecule, large chain protein, called the Ben-Jones protein, that's usually a very good indication it's multiple myeloma. And it's because of the M protein, which is usually a high increased number of immunoglobulins. One type and one type only. Okay, and we talked about the prognosis. Wonderful. Okay, and we already talked about what our CRAB stands for. So why would you have fatigue? Why would you have a symptom of fatigue? Okay, it could be a symptom of cancer, but It causes anemia. This affects your hemopoietic cells, which affects your red blood cells being created. If your red blood cells aren't created properly or they're not enough created, you're gonna end up with fatigue because you're gonna be anemic. Why would you have bone pain? So, if I'm eating away at bone, you're right, it can lead to pathological fractures. But this is a hemopoietic stem cell cancer, which means bone marrow here is an issue. So if bone marrow is producing cells that aren't functioning properly, is there feedback maybe to the bone marrow to say, hey, I don't have working red blood cells. I don't have working B B cells. I don't have working immune system cells or thrombocytes. So maybe you need to make some more and it gets us positive feedback. So now your bone marrow is gonna be working a whole lot more, which ends up causing the bone pain. So why, we already talked about hypotrasemia, why would you have recurrent infections? Your immune system sucks. This is affecting bone marrow, which means your immune system is not properly armed to fight the infections. Okay, and then we know about the unexplained weight loss. Okay, so yeah, yeah, crab, we already talked about that. Um, with multiple myeloma, is this something you would treat? So, if a patient came into you and said, I was just recently diagnosed with multiple myeloma, you can treat it. I don't know. You guys tell me. What do you think? Would you treat or would you say, I can't treat you? So, what would you modify if you did treat? Pressure. pressure. Why? Because if
1: they're having bone
0: pain or those types of SNS, higher maybe because their body's not functioning properly, more pressure
1: could possibly affect it. Okay. And if they have issues with bone lesions or fractures, if you use too much pressure, you could
0: possibly fracture something. You could. What would the likelihood of you causing a fracture in the skull? Is anybody using their elbow on someone's skull? Probably not. Um, Femur. There's a lot of tissue around the femur. Are you really gonna get deep enough to really cause possible pathological fracture in the femur? Now what about in the spine, in the vertebrae? Is it possible? Especially with your joint play, MOBS, it's possible. What about ribs? That's the big one we're concerned about, right? Because the pathological fractures it, these definitely, ribs are definitely one of the bones that are commonly affected with multiple myeloma. So that's something I would be very cautious with is my pressure over ribs for sure. Anything else we want to be cautious or concerned about? Are they on pain medication? Um, okay, so you would be careful of your pressure because yeah, of the pain meds? Okay, anything else you guys need to be careful of? So that's a good one. Um, back in the day, we used to, like, back in the day, we learned that you don't ever treat anybody with cancer because you could increase blood circulation and increase lymph, which would then possibly increase the risk of metastasis. That's not so much a concern. It's so <laughs> not a concern. Do they walk? Yeah. Do they take hot showers? Yeah. Well, they do a lot. Okay. Or probably, right. Point being are they creating lymph movement? Are they creating increased blood circulation? Are you really gonna increase it that much more than what they're doing in their ADLs? Probably not So as long as they're being monitored and they're not having any symptoms, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Now all of a sudden, if they start to complain about low back pain and they start to have, let's say, urinary issues, so cloudy urine, or their urine starts to change, or they're starting to have dysuria, which basically means painful urination, then I would start to get concerned about kidney and I might not treat at that point because increasing blood circulation means increasing circulation to the kidneys, which overloads the kidneys. But if there are no symptoms of the kidneys, they're gonna be monitored or you're gonna make sure they're being monitored because they should be monitored. Anything else we need to be careful of? Any other modifications? Would anybody not treat? So everybody, okay. I gotta tell you a quick story. So I was probably out of practice, I'm gonna say, I don't know, maybe six months, maybe a year. And I had this lady come to me and she was diagnosed with lymphoma. So, and I said to her that unfortunately, I wasn't able to treat her because I could increase the metastasis of her cancer. We're talking about this was like 20 years ago. So I explained to her that by increasing blood circulation, increasing the lymph drainage, that I could increase the metastasis of her lymphoma. And she says, I'm already stage four. Where else is it going to go? And my response to her was, I'm really sorry, but I don't want to make it any worse because that was always what was drilled into her heads. So she started bawling. Had a major breakdown because she said to me, "Every since I got cancer, and she put it in quotations, nobody will touch me. Everybody looks at me, everybody pities me, and nobody will touch me." And I felt so guilty and I felt so sad that all she all she wanted was a little bit of contact, human contact, but she wasn't getting anywhere else. So, anyways, long story short, the psychological component of treating somebody with cancer, you're not going to fix the cancer. You're not going to cure it but the psychological component that you're giving them is huge. So if you're comfortable to treat, I would say treat because those individuals usually aren't getting a whole lot of contact except for a treatment, which is chemo radiation, which is usually making them very, very sick. So just keep in mind, you may not be feeling like you're doing a huge thing for them physically, but the psychological component is huge. Okay, sickle cell anemia. Has anybody met anybody with sickle cell anemia? Okay, I had a student many, many years ago whose son had sickle cell anemia. And let me tell you, this is basically what the little boy looked like. So, he was of African descent. Um, When I met him, I think he might have been seven or eight. And his father missed lots of school. So back in the day they used to call it a sickle cell crisis which basically means your red blood cells are supposed to be like this we call it biconcave okay that's what they're supposed to look like and the idea with that shape is that they can kind of sleek and slender through all the little capillaries okay so they can get through and kind of like Sleek their way through like a serpent, like a snake. When your cell shape changes and it becomes like a moon, we call this crescent shape, or sickled, if your red blood shells change shape and they're now in this shape, how easy do you think it would be for them to get through a capillary, which is a single tiny walled membrane So what happens when they become this shape? They clog the capillary. What happens at a capillary? An exchange. So you're usually going to be giving in nutrients, for example, oxygen or glucose, and you're going to be taking up garbage. So if I've blocked this, can I dump off my nutrients? How do your muscles feel when they don't get enough oxygen? How do your lungs feel when they don't get enough oxygen? How do you feel when you don't get enough oxygen or nutrients? Yeah, everybody gets super crabby, right? You have a meltdown. That's essentially what happens here, is you basically get an embolism in the capillary which prevents that organ from getting fed from what it needs and then it has a little crisis. The new word, we don't use sickle cell crisis anymore, the new word is an episode. Okay, so anyways, you may hear people talk about a sickle cell crisis, you may hear it as an episode. But what happens is that red blood cells, as they're circulating, change shape. And as they change shape, they basically vaso-occlude blood vessels so that the organs don't get their blood supply. And then the organs scream because they're not getting what they need. So, looking at this, you are born with this disease, okay? It is an inherited genetic disease. But in utero, the red blood cells are actually coming from the parent, okay? The baby is starting to make its own blood circulation, but a lot of that blood is coming from the mother. So, in utero, the baby's kind of protected from these red blood cells, becoming sickled cell, becoming sickled shape. Once they're born, and they're now no longer dependent on the mother, and they're just using their own red blood cells, when they go into any kind of emotional, psychological, or physical stress, these red blood cells will change shape. So, they go into an airplane, change altitude, they could have an episode, or a crisis. They go into an exam super stress, psychological, going into a crisis. They get into a car accident, they could go into a crisis. They get the cold, they get a flu, they could go into a crisis or an episode. So any kind of stress triggers those red blood cells to change state, which then cause occlusion of the blood vessels going to whatever organ it is. So the first episode could be into the kidneys. So you could have a major kidney issue. And the next time you can end up with a stroke. And the next time it could affect the spleen. And the next time it could affect the bones. Could be fainting. Too. Could be fainting. Don't go there. <laughs> don't go there. Yes, because it could occlude the blood to the brain. So, yes, it could go there. But you don't go there. So, we need to know it is genetic, so you're born with this. The reason people um, end up getting sickle cell anemia, so you would think that how did this trait survive? These people, malaria, these people are having major crises. Organs could be failing, and they could die quite young. They could die in their adolescent years, their 20s, their 30s. Nowadays, they're usually pretty good with the meds and catching it, that they're usually living into their 30s, 40s, and 50s. But way back in the day, how were they surviving? So any Mediterranean um, or African descent, What was happening is when malaria came in and wiped out a population, there was this group of individuals that didn't die from malaria. And nobody really understood how and why they didn't die from malaria. But they didn't die because the red blood cells changed shape and the malaria couldn't attack it. So they survived into their teens and 20s to be able to reproduce. So sickle cell anemia is a damaging and very disruptive and super painful disease but they're protected against malaria. So, interesting. So it has lived on. Um, Okay, we really need to know about the triggers. Any stress, any stress. Any stress. Okay, so literally, whether it's psychological, emotional, physical, you name it. That's usually what causes a crisis. That's usually what will cause those red blood cells to change shape. So you can certainly memorize these manifestations, but this is the thing. It affects every organ. Blood goes everywhere. So could this affect the spleen? Yeah, which now would affect your red blood cells and your lymphatic system. Could this affect bones? Yeah. It could occlude oxygen and vascularity to the bones. Could this affect muscles, connective tissue, lungs, liver? So basically your symptoms are pain and occlusion in any organ. One of the common ones that I'm gonna say is usually more chronic, so it usually doesn't happen until they're in their like teens, 20s, or 30s, but they're starting to see this in kids, is strokes. So this does not affect your intelligence or your mental quotient at all. However, they're starting to see that some of these kids are having a mental decline, and when they've started to MRI these kids, the mental decline is not because of the disease, it's because of the strokes. So this is kind of one of the big things now that they're monitoring with sickle cell anemia is monitoring for strokes, so regular MRIs to make sure that there isn't anything going on. Okay, so every single system can be affected. We talked about that. So classic Mediterranean, Eastern European, sorry, not Eastern European, African or Mediterranean primarily um, is where you would typically see this. It affects kids. So you will have kids going into these episodes or these crises. So when they talk about their being in pain or all of a sudden they can't pee or they can't breathe, or they pass out. For example, those are probably symptoms of a vascular occlusion because of the sickle cell anemia. All right. So stroke is the big one. We already talked about that. So I do want you guys to watch this video because I think it really indicates how severe it is. My other kids used to go outside and find, I would try to do that, then i come home and very sick
5: and have to be back in the hospital. 17-year-old Alexandria Young of St. Louis, Missouri, has sickle cell anemia among 72,000 Americans with the disease.
3: Among all Americans, approximately 1 in 1,500 to 1 in 2,000 newborns will be diagnosed with sickle cell disease.
5: In people with sickle cell disease, their red blood cells become deformed turning sickle-shaped. The bone marrow tries to make more red cells to make up for the loss, but can't keep up, causing anemia. Their new shape keeps them from moving properly through the body, and the misshapen cells can jam up and stick to the walls of the blood vessels. These clumps cut off oxygen to healthy tissue, delaying a child's normal growth and causing fatigue and extreme pain it's like like a hammer beating at you like for a long time i never heard anybody scream that high and just well
4: out and and uh, we were like what's wrong what's wrong And man she had it so bad where her eyes just roll back up you know just roll back and and you know just in pain just just screaming yelling and we, we didn't know what to do. And I thought
1: she was just talking in her sleep or, or something. But she had mentioned that she was ready to go home. And I said, Alexandria, you are home. We are home now. She said, no, Mom, I want to go to heaven. That's my home. And uh... OK, deep breath.
5: Dr. Michael Dubon has been Alexandria's hematologist since she was four years old. Any headaches, double vision, fatigue, and pain are not the only issue in sickle cell disease. Essentially, every organ in the body can be damaged by the lack of oxygen. The kidneys, the heart, the eyes, and now we know even the brain.
3: In addition to pain, probably the most feared complication is that of stroke.
5: Yeah, and right here is a silent stroke. When Alexandria was 12 years old, a brain scan revealed that she had indeed had a stroke. I was very scared because I thought only older people would have a stroke in that 12-year-old. Silent strokes like Alexandria's were not even recognized until a small research study in the 90s was conducted to better understand sickle cell disease in children. MRIs showed that strokes occurred when the misshapen cells got stuck in the brain and cut off oxygen to it.
3: Certain locations of the brain control your movement. They control your motor ability, okay? There are other areas of the brain that if we removed it, it wouldn't alter your movement at all it would alter your ability to think the area of the brain in the frontal alone is the area of the brain that's more likely to have silent strokes so most of the children with silent strokes they're actually walking around interacting with their family in a fashion that makes people think that yeah, this child is doing well
5: dr Dubois has alexandria on a research protocol hoping to stop the strokes monthly blood transfusions called apheresis remove Alexandria's damaged red sickle cells and replace them with red blood cells from a healthy donor. The hope is that the healthy new red blood cells will prevent her from having future strokes. Dr. Devon monitors Alexandria's condition closely, including annual brain scans to look for further damage. I pray constantly, you know, about uh, Alexandria, that she hasn't had another silent stroke. The young family won't know the results until their next visit to Dr. Dubon. I'll
2: clean.
5: Good Stand on this
1: protocol, it, it mm-hmm. has dramatically improved her classroom performance dramatically just improved everything. Everything in her life is just completely turned around.
4: Whew. it's just like
1: like a switch,
4: man. It just totally changed her. She started to grow. Congratulations, that's fantastic.
3: Straight A's.
4: How was the uh, test results?
3: We had the MRI of her um, brain performed a couple of days ago.
1: Just uh, to make sure that she hasn't had any new episodes of uh,
3: silent shows. <coughs> and the answer is no.
4: No the <laughs> so um, it's all done and it's really good.
0: She will continue to be monitored her whole entire life. So in an episode that's when
1: it the shape changes and then after it goes
0: back or yep, like once the stress goes back. away, oh. the red blood cells oftentimes will go back to the regular shape. Okay. Yep. So there's something with that stress mechanism that causes, yep, okay. causes that cell shape to change. Correct. They're usually deforming due to some kind of external or internal environment issue. So
5: when they take out her red blood
3: cells, the new ones can't change
0: shape. Right. So it's her own that can. Right. You got it. So they're
3: not sickle cell
0: always? Not, no. She, they, so you're saying she's feeling fine, she, she won't should. have sickle cell. D- There may be some that are residual because red blood cells do live for, you know, two to three months kind of thing. So there may be some residual ones, but typically, no. They sickle because of some kind of change and then they're usually going to change back to their shape after that, what would it be? Couple of weeks.
5: Oh, that I don't know. Can you take, if they took on someone else's blood cells, that it was within their own cell only, basically?
0: Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if that's what triggered them. It could have been. I'm not sure. I mean, it would make sense. Yeah. Okay, so now we're talking about bleeding disorders. Do you guys want a break? Because we've got two more things to do, I think, right? We're just doing hemophilia and von Willebrand's disease. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have that much left to do. Do you want a break or we can just finish it? Just finish it. Finish it! Okay. Bleeding disorders. Okay, so when we have an injury to a blood vessel, so let's say this is a blood vessel and there's some kind of lesion to it. How do you close up that blood vessel? Did you just bleed out? Okay, so clot it. So how do you do, how does that clot? How does that clotting occur? So usually what happens is when you've got an opening, a damage to the, for example, the lumina intima, there's gonna be a message sent out through the blood to basically say, hey, we need platelets and thrombocytes to come to the area. So let's just call these T's, okay, thrombocytes. And they're gonna come to the area. Okay, so there's gonna be basically a messenger sent out through the blood where these thrombocytes are gonna start to migrate towards that area. In addition to that, it also starts to send out a message to all your clotting factors. There's approximately 10 clotting factors. So once your thrombocytes get sent the message, you start this cascading effect. Okay, so you're gonna start with clotting factor number one is then gonna to activate to clotting factor number two, then it's gonna activate three, then it's gonna activate four. And once one gets going, and they're just gonna keep activating each other, it's gonna go all the way until 10. 10 is now going to help to create movement of the thrombocytes and the platelets. Already you're trying to fix this by fibrinogens, right? You're gonna create like a little bit of scar tissue. And then these are basically going to stick. Clotting factor 8, 9, and 10 are going to help your thrombocytes kind of stick to the fibrin, to the fibrinogen, which is then going to close up your injury. Okay, so in order to clot, you need to have scar tissue formation, so your fibrinogen. You need to have your thrombocytes or your platelets. And you need to have 10 clotting factors. Okay, so there's actually a lot that goes on into trying to fix an injury. So, it is common, I'm going to say relatively common-ish, in your 10 clotting factors, the ones that are usually a problem, oops, the ones that are usually a problem are 8 or 9. And... Eight is usually the more common one, of the two. So let's just say one gets activated, then activates two, then three, then four, then five, then six, then seven, then eight. And eight's like, yeah, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to hang out here and sit here and not do anything. So what happens? I don't clot! Because then nine doesn't, isn't getting told anything. Ten's not getting told anything. It's not moving the thrombocytes. So then I don't clot. So if I don't clot, what happens? I just keep leaving. Okay, so in addition to this, so clotting factor number eight, when it circulates in the blood, because it is, it's a regular circulating protein in the blood, it always circulates with von Willebrand factor. Okay, so in the blood right now, you all have von Willebrand factor attached to factor eight. Okay, so it's not doing anything. Even if seven tries to tell it to do something, it can't do anything because it's, it's already attached. It's already in a couple. So when you have a lesion, when you have an injury, what happens is von Willebrand factor actually leaves factor number eight to activate it. So now it's ready to go when seven tells it it's, it needs to go. Does that make sense? Okay, so. In addition to there being a problem with clotting factor number eight, if von Willebrand factor doesn't work properly and doesn't detach itself from eight to activate eight, you can also get excessive bleeding. Does that make sense? Okay. A problem with von Willebrand factor is the most common bleeding disorder. Everybody always says thinks hemophilia is the most common bleeding disorder. It's not. Von Willebrand disease is the most common bleeding disorder. And now we can understand what's happening. If it's not working properly, it's not going to detach from 8, which means it doesn't activate 8, so that it's not re- it can't be ready for 7 to hit it to then cause 9 and 10 to clot, to then close up the area. Yeah?
4: Can you
0: produce synthetic clotting factor? Okay. Can we produce? The medical professionals right now have... St- started to create some um, synthetic factor eight and von Willebrand factor, they've had some success with it. It's not curing everybody, but they've had some success with it, so I'm gonna say yes to a certain degree. That is actually one of the treatments. It just doesn't fix everybody. Okay, so now that we have an idea about that, so we know that von Willebrand factor is needed to detach from eight, that's circulating together all the time so that eight can get activated and then when 8 is called upon with 7 then 8 can then activate 9 which can activate 10 which can then close everything off so if I don't have clotting factor 8 or it's not working properly this is called hemophilia A if clotting factor number 9 is not there or is not working properly. This is called hemophilia B, which is not very common. This is also known as Christmas Christmas disease. I always wanna say Christmas tree. Christmas disease. The most common bleeding disorder, Von Willebrand's disease. Number two, hemophilia A. The least common and it's really quite rare is Christmas disease. Okay, so we need to know What factor is a problem with each of the diseases? Because on the final, we talked about there being association questions. So if I put a clotting factor as a cause, as an etiology, you'll know which one it is, right? Okay. All right, so with hemophilia, it's an X-linked disease. So what else was an X-linked disease that we talked about? Duchenne's yeah Duchenne's muscular dystrophy so if you remember when we talked about Duchenne's muscular dystrophy what was it a boy or a girl that actually had the disease boy. the boys and the girls were carriers. carriers okay so essentially it's the same thing here so if it's an X-linked disease so okay I like the female version better but we'll go with this if it's an x disease, so the, the man, the husband, the father, is giving two Ys to his boy, right? Because he's going to get an X from the girl, right? So the mother's going to give the X. So in this case, if the father has hemophilia, then the boys are totally fine. No issues whatsoever. The father is going to give an X to each of the girls and going to get an X from the mother. So the father who has hemophilia will always, always, always have girl carriers. Now here's the thing. We talked about when Duchenne's, females really don't have any manifestations, right? They don't have any signs and symptoms. In this case, it's not quite the same. Carriers can still have minor symptoms. So for example, it would be more common for a female who's a carrier of hemophilia to have longer periods to have more bleeding during their periods, to bleed longer after child labor. It's not like they have a lot of bruising, it's not like after a dental procedure they'd have a lot of bleeding, it's not quite common with that. But in normal procedures or normal instances, they do have a little bit more bleeding than someone who would not be a carrier. Okay, so they do have some symptoms, but they're not quite as severe as men. Now, if we had a female, if the mother was a carrier, So let's say x is bad so the mother is a carrier and the father is totally fine so the father is going to give a y to the boy everybody agree with that and then the mother is going to give an x so she's going to give a good x possibly and then she's going to give maybe a bad X. now in this case this son totally fine this son only has one X. That X is responsible for creating clotting factor, clotting factor 8 in this case, because it would be hemophilia 8. So in this case, he doesn't have a good X that's creating clotting factors. So the son in this case would have hemophilia. Whereas in the females, so the father is going to give a good X, the mother could give a good X, the father could give a good X. And the mother could give a bad X. Okay.
5: So when we talk about females. Why did you say it's factor A? Hemophilia. A. No. Why not B? Why A? It's a. most commonly. Okay. B is really not common. Okay,
2: sorry. It's really That's not sorry. common. Okay. So I'm pretty much going to be talking about hemophilia A because.
0: Oh. Of B. Oh. <laughs> um. So when we talk about a female, a mother being a carrier, she'll always have a son that is affected and possibly have a female that is a carrier. But 50% of the kids could be totally normal, right? One boy, one girl. So we need to know that this is an X-linked gene because this does affect boys way more than girls. And the reason why is because it's X-linked, right? And boys only get one X. So if they've got a bad X, they've got the disease. So there's different... um, degrees of hemophilia. You can be a mild hemophiliac, you could be moderate, or you could be severe. So let's say in a mild hemophiliac, what do you think would be common to see? Like what kind of symptoms do you think they would have? They might have small nosebleeds, infrequent nosebleeds, right? That might resolve in five, 10, 15 minutes maybe. Anything else?
5: Bruises maybe just
0: last a little longer. Bruises could last longer for sure. What about kids at the playground? Think about kids. Kids at the playground, what do they do? They hurt themselves. They get cut. So usually within what? 30 seconds to a minute, you usually stop bleeding. So these individuals with hemophilia, they might bleed for a few minutes. It'll usually be less than an hour. What about going to the dentist? So they're going to bleed a little bit more, for sure. What about giving blood? They're going to bleed a little bit more, so getting their shots and things like that. Now, moderate hemophiliacs, this becomes a little bit of an issue. With moderate hemophiliacs, there usually is more prolonged bleeding time. Now, one of the major issues is hemorthrosis. Hemarthrosis, what is that? What do you think when you see hemo blood? and arthrosis, condition of joints. So you have blood creating a condition of joints. Once you get into being a moderate hemophiliac and you get bumps and bruises, you fall off of things, you fall off of a bike, yeah, you're going to bleed more out of your skin. But what about the bleeding inside? What about deep muscle tissue? What about ligamentous tissue? What about around the joints? The problem with that is you don't necessarily see that bleeding. So with moderate to severe hemophiliacs, this is a major issue. They have internal bleeding you have no idea about. And bleeding into the joint is not uncommon, especially in kids or adolescents that are active and doing lots of crazy things and getting injured all the time. So what happens when you've got blood in your joints? Is that normal? Okay, so what do you, what does the body do? Mounts an inflammatory response, wonderful. So then you send a whole bunch of phagocytes and your granulophils and your agranulophils and you're just, they're just going to town. And this is happening often because you're bleeding into your joints, often, every time you injure yourself. What's gonna happen over time? It's gonna eat away. It's gonna eat away a synovial membrane. It's gonna eat away at the articular cartilage and it's gonna start to degrade the joint. That's one of the major issues for us especially with someone who is a hemophiliac if it's moderate to severe. You have to make sure that joints have not been destroyed. So they should be getting fairly regular x-rays because that is something quite significant. Now severe hemophiliacs, spontaneous bleeding, spontaneous bleeding in the mouth, spontaneous bleeding of the GI tract, spontaneous bleeding of the nose, spontaneous bleeding period. So. How would you know if there's any bleeds along, let's say, the GI system? Um, If it was, like we're talking about in organs, we're talking about like the stomach is like ulcered and it's bleeding, so you've got blood coming into the stomach. How would you, okay, so what would the stool look like? Okay, so if it's gonna be esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, proximal part of large intestine, it'll be black. If it is something along the anus, distal aspects of the descending oh, colon, or right, yeah, then it'll, it'll be bad, red. Yeah. But usually red, I'm, I'm gonna rule out cancer type stuff, right? So if you know that these people, they're born with this. They're born with von disease or they're born with the hemophilia. So they typically know and hopefully on the health history form, they will write that down. My recommendation to you is to make sure to ask the questions, how are their stools? Because if their stool is black, that is something that you should be sending them back to their GP for, because that needs to be assessed. Because is that bleeding continuing? Could they go into shock because their blood pressure goes down too much because they're constantly bleeding? They could go into shock and have a heart attack and die. So. Please, with their hemophiliacs or anybody that has von Willebrand disease, please ask the questions about their stool because you need to know about internal bleeds because you won't necessarily know about it unless they're coughing up blood or unless they've got the black tarry stool. Can it like
5: change from severity? But can it go from mild to moderate to severe, or is it just it one can, or the other? can.
0: It not? is more common that when you're a severe hemophiliac, you're a severe hemophiliac. If you are a mild feel hemophil- you're mild. So, but yes, it can or get like worse. Or it get better,
5: like you could have severe when you're born and it could get towards mild. With positive.
0: treatment, yes. Okay. Not typically on its own. So, we do need to know that there is a range of hemophilia, okay? Not everybody is going to die from internal bleeding. But we also need to know this is a major issue for us, okay? Oh, what happened here? Okay. All right. Yeah, we talked about that A and B. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that, we talked about that. Okay, there's no cure. How do you fix hemophilia? There's no cure! So yes, you can synthetically give them the clotting factor. Usually gonna be clotting factor number eight if it's hemophilia A, which is usually the more common kind. Um, But the more important thing is usually education. When these people are born, their parents are going to be educated about what the consequences and the complications are. And the dentist needs to know that you're a hemophiliac. Your massage therapist needs to know. Your chiropractor needs to know. Everybody needs to know that you're a hemophiliac because there is risks with internal bleeding, which could be very damaging. Okay? So that's really important. All right. Von Willebrand's disease. Okay, the wonderful thing about Von Willebrand's disease is that... It is decreased severity. It is not as severe as hemophilia, which is wonderful because von Willebrand's disease is way more common than hemophilia, right? And it's more mild. So are people usually bleeding out with von Willebrand's disease? No, wonderful, but same symptoms, right? Could they still bleed into the joints when there's an injury? Yeah. Are they still gonna have excessive bleeding during procedures, for example, if they go in for a surgery? If they go in for dental work? So all the same things apply. Kids, when they get scrapes, are they gonna bleed for a prolonged period of time? Yes! Okay. So we need to know the cause of von Willebrand's disease. It is lack of or non-functioning von Willebrand factor, which is required to clot, to activate, clotting factor number eight, to create a full fibrinogen clot, closing off vascular injuries. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then treatment, we already talked about that. Oh, let me ask you something. So in education, you're gonna talk about, like, avoiding injuries. You're gonna talk about educating they have people that are working with them, like healthcare professionals, about their condition. What else do you want to talk about, maybe? So someone comes in and says, oh my God, I got headaches every single week. Anything you might wanna mention, you can't really tell them to take this and not this, but anything you might wanna steer them towards or away from, NSAIDs. Non-osteriorally anti-inflammatories usually thin the blood. When they thin the blood, guess what happens? More bleeding, less clotting. You already have an issue. So you're not going to say stop taking aspirin, start using Tylenol. But you may say to them, you might want to go back and talk to your pharmacist because usually your anti-inflammatories, things like aspirins and Advils, that you may be using for your headaches could make your condition a little worse and you might want to use something like Tylenol. But I would definitely go talk to your pharmacist about that, (laughs) right? Because if they are dealing with a lot of issues, pain, and they're taking NSAIDs significantly, that increases their risk of GI bleeds, which they're already at risk for. So your job will be education. Okay. How are we doing? Everybody seems really off today. It is, it is reading week now, basically, right? Basically, okay. So is this good or can we back it up a day? Like open it Friday. I'm being told you guys are in class on Thursday, so there's no point having it open on Thursday. There's the class are in class in the morning on Thursday who want to have it so that they don't have to do it in the evening. Yeah. Because
1: they also have responsibilities that they need to do it in the evening. So everybody's
0: good with this? Not backing it up? Not a good idea? Okay. I don't care. Who wants to back that up? I was just putting it out there. I was just putting it out there. Okay. So. We are done.